The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, dedicated to helping you experience all the benefits of time outside and stay more comfortable while you're out there. From soft and breathable activewear designed to do it all, to just right layers perfect for changing weather, to sun smart clothing that blocks the sun's harmful rays, every L.L. Bean product is made with comfortable time outside in mind. Visit LLBean.com to shop now. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Joshua Tree National Park in Southern California encompasses parts of both the Mojave and Colorado deserts. This unique ecosystem conjures images of the iconic trees, desert washes, wondrous boulders, rattlesnakes, and cactus blooms. But long before it became a national park, or even a national monument prior to that, this area was home to people from Native Americans to pioneers, cattlemen, homesteaders, and miners. And where you find people, you find music. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, a continuation from last week's episode from Lauren Eisenberg Davis on the music of Joshua Tree. Our story begins with the arrival of the Native Americans in the area now designated Joshua Tree National Park. Three primary tribes, the Cahuilla, Serrano, and Chimwavi inhabited the park, bringing their traditional music to the desert. Here's Abigail Trebu. From rituals to sacred songs to leisure songs, music permeated every aspect of tribal life in the Joshua Tree area. Recording tribal history, punctuating ceremonies, and providing entertainment and comfort. Best known among Kawila music are bird songs, which give the Kawila people the rules and regulations to live by. They let Mother Earth know that by singing about plants and trees and animals and spirits, the people have not forgotten her. Songs preserved the sacred knowledge of the people. The Kawila are known as one of California's indigenous singing cultures. The Serrano also brought their rich music heritage to the area. Serrano singer Magdalena Grace Nombre explained the best way to catch a song. You just walk around in the desert until you find a quiet, beautiful place, and then you sit down on the earth and listen. If you want to catch a song, you have to open your mind. You have to stop thinking and listen to the sounds of the earth. When you hear the songs of the earth, it's like the wind going through the leaves of a tree. It sounds like a bird flying. Chemahuevi music is inextricably tied to geography and territorial trails, with clear descriptions of each landmark in the order it would be encountered on the trail. The crux of the songs is to teach the people that if they take care of the land, the land will take care of the people. The Chemahuevi considered songs personal property, either individually or as a territorial group. The theft of a song was unimaginable. Songs commanded respect for the incalculable power of the words, the rhythms, the timbers. Chemahuevi salt songs describe the geography of ancestral lands and ancient villages, locations of salt and medicinal herbs, and routes for trading and pilgrimages. In the 1800s, Native American music and traditions, which had remained constant for centuries, if not millennia, began to undergo marked and disastrous changes. 
the government reclaimed Indian lands and issued the boarding school policy, separating the children from their families. Quite simply, the assimilation of Native Americans into the rest of American society reduced the daily exposure of the youth to traditional culture. Little by little, the songs that held a place of great importance in Native American life disappeared. The loss of Native American land rights transitioned the population of the park to pioneers. The sounds of creation songs, bird songs, and salt songs gave way to new music in the desert. Although it may seem counterintuitive to graze cattle in the desert, by the mid-1800s, ranchers began running their herds into the northern half of what is now Joshua Tree National Park. Back then, rain was more plentiful in the park than today, and enough grass covered the open range to provide grazing territory. Cattle companies built rainwater tanks in the desert. Many such as White Tank, Twin Tanks, and Barker Dam still exist in the park today. Naturally, with the cattlemen came their music. An important distinction must be made between cowboy songs popularized by movies and stars such as Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, and the songs of actual cowboys who tended the cattle. Popularized cowboy songs were marketable products written by hired writers with diverse backgrounds, some of whom had never been to the American West. These were not the songs of the cattlemen in Joshua Tree. Out on the range, cowboy music served very specific purpose, to soothe the cattle and as a respite for the cowboys from their own loneliness. Many cowboy songs were old familiar ballads repurposed with new words about the places cowboys had been, people they left behind, their adventures and fears. But cowboys were not the only adventurers to move into Joshua Tree. As gold began to dwindle in the mines of Northern and Central California, miners drifted into the desert. Widespread mining activity was underway in the park by the 1870s. Today, 288 abandoned mining sites are contained within the boundaries of Joshua Tree National Park, bearing names such as Lost Horse, Desert Queen, Silver Bell, Wall Street, and Dirty Sock. Many may wonder what brought people to the desert to make a home for themselves and their families when there were no paved roads, no stores, and hardly any neighbors. When people had to dig their own wells to have water or, if unsuccessful, haul water several miles back to their homesteads. But the reason that homesteaders settled the Joshua Tree area were many and varied, including adventure, health, and 100 acres of free land to settlers who committed to establishing residency. As the homesteaders loaded their cars and trucks with their few belongings for life in the desert and traveled the long, one-lane dirt road to their new home sites, they often brought along a song or two. Their stories are sprinkled with the role music played in their lives. Music was plentiful both within the privacy of homes and communally via dances and multifamily picnics in the park. Songs brought comfort, familiarity, and serenity in time of uncertainty and upheaval. They helped pass the time during mindless chores. In the end, music also served to bring people together. Helen Bagley, an early settler, told this brief story from the late 1920s in her book, Sand in My Shoe. It was best to put the little boys to bed as soon as possible after supper. If we were alone, I sang to them while I washed the dishes. Some melody of Stephen Foster's or... Sleep, my love, and peace attend thee all through the night. 
Not that I could sing, but in that cluttered room, dimly lit with hissing gasoline lanterns, there was more the need of music. And so music permeated this desert enclave in ways both unique and familiar. Children sang on the school bus, learned to square dance in school, and took private piano lessons. The high school band would perform for picnics in the park. A wealthy equestrian group held catered dinners where they would hoist a grand piano up on a large, flat rock by Barker Dam. Time passed and the community matured. So did its music, growing to include local bands and community theater. And perhaps most intriguing to the public, famous musicians began frequenting the park. Today, the music scene in Joshua Tree is described as bohemian, varied, authentic. When people consider music in Joshua Tree, they think rock and roll and the visual images of famous album covers. U2's The Joshua Tree, featuring iconic Joshua Tree photographs, which ironically, were not shot in the park. America's hat trick with the park's palm trees on Cottonwood Trail against the mountain backdrop and the Eagles' debut album portraying the group's logo flying above the park's Chala Cactus Garden. But the popular music lore in the Joshua Tree area is far more than famous album covers. There are musicians who perform in the desert because of the venues and audiences there, while others perform there because they must, because the desert is inextricably part of their being. The musicians associated with Joshua Tree range from big names to local favorites. One story defines popular music mythology at the park, the strange death of Graham Parsons. Graham Parsons was a country rocker whose music first crossed and then blurred the lines between country and rock and roll. Parsons came to Joshua Tree often, seeking his inspiration in the park. After the death of one of his friends, Parsons mentioned that when he died, he wanted his ashes spread in Joshua Tree National Monument. Sadly, in 1973, at age 26, Graham Parsons died of an overdose at the Joshua Tree Inn. His friends brought his body to the park, doused it with gas, and ignited it. Other famous musicians found their way to Joshua Tree. Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, traveled there to shoot footage for his unreleased film Highway, an American pastoral. Keith Richards, lead guitarist of the Rolling Stones, frequented the park. Mexican-American singer Selena recorded a music video of her song Amor Prohibido in Joshua Tree. The park also invites musicians directly to perform, to create, to learn and grow, and to share Joshua Tree National Park celebrated its 75th anniversary in 2011 with music, a Rita Coolidge concert, and a limited edition Fender guitar featuring custom graphics of a Joshua Tree silhouette and the outline of the mountains melding into the sky, with just a hint of a bighorn sheep if you look closely enough. The following year, hundreds of people attended another major concert at the park featuring Chris Hillman and Herb Penderson of The Birds, who sang such classics as Turn, 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 and If I Could Only Win Your Love. Aside from the big names of Coolidge and the Birds, Joshua Tree National Park has invited other musicians from special programs and also as artists in residence. The program is highly competitive and most often draws visual artists. However, two musicians have served in the position, Luke Gullickson in 2009 and Adam Tinkle in 2012, 
each of whom brought a very different musical perspective to Joshua Tree National Park. Luke Golickson is a singer-songwriter who described his focus as musical maps and labyrinths inspired by place and landscape. He created a body of work at Joshua Tree that fills two albums, Lost Horse Porch Music and Lost Horse Volume 2. Luke said the program impacted him as both a person and a musician. The quiet of the desert, the force of the solitude, created a perfect atmosphere for reaching in and pulling out these songs. It set the tone for my songwriting efforts, proved to me that I have something to say in that medium, and taught me how to function in a period of focused solitude and creation. Joshua Tree was a life changer. Adam Tinkle is an experimental musician and professor whose project, a concert in the area surrounding the Indian Cove Amphitheater, was performed by an ensemble consisting of brass, woodwinds, strings, percussion, and vocals and was created to explore the venue's acoustic phenomena and meditations on its vast spaces and its engulfing silence. The desert, Adam said, is different gradations of silence, not absence of sound. The sounds of your body are prominent as if the desert is playing you. It is an appreciative, mindful listening frame around any listening experience. Stemming from a fascination with large sonic depth of field, his message is simple but urgent. You need to have the time to listen to your surroundings. He observed, Joshua Tree National Park is an incredibly quiet space. You can hear the insect buzzing right next to your ear and something unimaginably far away, based in comparison to everyday urban living. It enables you to test the limits and possibilities of your hearing. From protests for climate change awareness to solar and wind power protests, many social action events in this area have been accompanied by impromptu music jams in the park. One of the most notable was Shut Down the Shutdown. On October 1st, 2013, after the United States Congress failed to agree on a spending plan, the non-essential portions of the U.S. government shut down. This meant, among other things, the national parks. 16 days into the shutdown, the park's strongest allies decided they had had enough and planned a peaceful protest of the government shutdown. Over 100 people marched into the park past the sign announcing the closure. Free our parks, they chanted over and over again, until free our parks gave way to shut down the shutdown, repeated to the rhythmic pulse of drumbeats. People began to clap to keep the beat of the chant, shut down the shutdown, shut down the shutdown. The chanting morphed into singing accompanied by a guitar and a stringed bass. Overlaid on top of shut down the shutdown, the first verses of Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land emerged, quiet at first, then gaining strength through all the familiar verses until they were singing the verses you never hear anymore. Woody Guthrie saying, in no uncertain terms, this is our land and not everything happening here is okay. Because in Woody Guthrie's world, beyond the Diamond Desert, beyond the Redwood Forest and the Gulf Stream waters, beyond California and the New York Island, America was also represented by no trespassing signs. Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land is more than a visual description of America's treasured landmarks. It is a protest song. 
clear as day. Midway through the rally came word that Congress had passed a bill to end the shutdown. Did the shutdown, the shutdown rally cause the end of the shutdown? Of course not. But it brought people together in an effort to use music as a call to action. Is it true, then, that music in the park is merely a compilation of unconnected nodes, of music events that happened in isolation from each other? Or is there something about this place that drew musicians from all over the country and the world over the course of history? Each person who passes this way has a different opinion about the bohemian music scene, how that developed, and whether it is meaningful in a big-picture sort of way. Are we bound to believe that the music of the homesteaders and cattlemen and miners was influenced by the music of the Native Americans, a few of whom still lived at the oasis of Mara at the time of their arrival? Did the contemporary music that springs from people born in the region or permanently transplanted there necessarily turn out a specific way because of the homesteaders and the Native Americans? Or was all the music created in the area shaped simply by being created in the desert? with its stark beauty, harsh winters, and scarce resources? Can we tie all the eras together into a dependent progression? Perhaps there is something intangible that draws it all together in a cohesive way. The Native Americans who lived here sang about their connection to the land, and in a way, all those who followed did the same thing. The miners and homesteaders and even the cattlemen sang to pass the time and to make the enormity and danger of their situations in this environment seem a bit less daunting. The people who come here now to make music, anybody who is drawn to this place by the physical properties and loneliness of the desert, feel a connection to the land, and it awakens in them a creativity dependent on a sense of time and place that cannot be replicated anywhere else. Many musicians have found Joshua Tree to be life-changing, How can it not be? There is a serenity and an edge there, not found in combination too many other places. You hear yourself differently in the desert, especially amidst the boulders. Your music sounds different, bigger, lonelier. Your ideas out in the wilderness take you different places. If you come to Joshua Tree National Park today, Take some time to check out the music. Look at the schedule of special programs in the park, which have included in the past Kawea bird songs, Chemoevi salt songs, and contemporary performances. Enjoy a picnic lunch at the Oasis of Mara behind the Oasis Visitor Center in 29 Palms, immersing yourself in the area that was home to centuries of Native American musicians. Photograph yourself in the Chala Cactus Garden or Cottonwood Trail and create your own replica of famous album covers. Tour the Desert Queen Ranch, where Bill and Francis Keys played music in their limited spare time. Stroll around Cap Rock, where you might find an impromptu memorial to Graham Parsons. On any given day, you can also venture into the Gateway Towns, just north of the park, to find open mic events or concerts at local venues, ranging from popular music to classical music and jazz. The area remains a music hotspot, a vibrant, intimate place where the desert silence gives way to that most universal human sound, music. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Trebu, and written by Lauren Eisenberg Davis. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. 
you can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America podcast available wherever you listen to this one. And if you're interested in RV travel, check out RVMiles.com or find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys as our wandering family all across social media. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.